Kindred, hello. I'm so glad to see you tonight. Uh, real quick, before we get started, guys, uh, in 1995, I was about to turn 17 years old, and my dad told me we were moving to a place called Denver, Colorado. Never been, didn't know what it was like. Pictured people on horses, to be honest with you. Uh, didn't see that right away, but I saw it since. Um, and I didn't want to move. I didn't want to be there. But one thing that happened when I got here is I discovered this thing called the Denver Nuggets. And I love them so much, even when they went 11 and 71. I watched every game. Juwan Howard trying to hit the glass over and over again and missing, and I somehow still loved them. And tomorrow, we start the ride of our lives. And I can't wait. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. So, uh, yeah, I'm not... Uh, is this real wood? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Just in case, just in case. I won't be that guy. Uh, hey, I'm so glad you guys are here. Tonight is my last night in Exodus. Can you believe it? Next week, Lindsay has one more. Uh, and then we are done with Exodus uh, probably forever. I'm going to be honest with you guys. But, uh, but we're going to be done with it. Um, we are excited to move on because it's been a long time. But I'm also really, honestly, I'm proud of the work we've done here together, uh, the things that we've learned. Honestly, the idea of going through Exodus felt daunting at first. And, and honestly, the problem quickly became that there was so much going on and I kept asking myself, how do I treat this passage well? And I know Lindsay did the same. So there's a few things that I would redo and a few things I was like, I could have done that differently. But in general, I've really enjoyed like this ride of Exodus and it has been one. Um, I, like Lindsay and I both read like six commentaries and some extra books. And I was thinking about this week as like waiting in line at Disney for a ride you really want to go on. Reading those books felt like hours of waiting for the thing that you were going to get to. And I felt like for me, I know some of you are going to be like, well, you're crazy. But for me, this has been like, you finally get to Space Mountain, which is the best ride at Disneyland. If you don't think so, you're wrong. So uh, you finally get to Space Mountain, you ride it, it's the greatest thing ever. So thanks for hanging with us through Exodus, uh, for the conversations, a couple good emails. I've learned as much as I ever have teaching something. I hope you guys learned something. So <laughs> it's been really fun. We have tonight the last five chapters of Exodus, and they feature uh, just a ton of repetition. Like, if I was to read you guys these chapters right now, you'd be like, this is the way we're going out, huh? Um, so, and it breaks out these instructions for building this tabernacle, this, the tabernacle, this place of worship, like Lindsay looked at a couple weeks ago. It's got these detailed instructions on how to make priests' robes. So if you're wondering, you can crack that open. You can find a recipe for that in there. Uh, as well as this, like, idea, these instructions for making this, this little ark that's going to house the tablets of the law that were, that, that, that were written and given to Moses. All kinds of things that we've seen over and over again is repeated in detail how they now go about making these things. And there's a lot of reasons why this repetition happens. Like the first one is this. It's a literary style and it was used a ton at this time to hammer things into people's heads, like into their memories, into their minds. And if you've learned nothing else in Exodus, probably you've learned that the Israelites are really good at forgetting things, right? Like five minutes after they see God part the Red Sea, they're like complaining about being hungry, right? Like they, they see things like that over and over again. So this was partially to hammer this into their heads, but also it's a historical record. So it's also here to show us, hey, all these things that were like told, hey, here, here's how you should do it. They all came to be. It all happened exactly the way that God said it would be. So uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna go through like, each nail that was hammered tonight. I'm not going to do that. Uh, we don't get much into the details of the construction because that's not my skill set to talk about like beams and frames and all that kind of stuff. I don't even know what most of that means. So I want to start somewhere that really makes sense to me to set us up for tonight. And it's this. Um, some people have a poker face, like a really good poker face. 
I don't know if you play poker or if you just know the term, but some people like they have this natural ability to just hold themselves really well. Like you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what the reaction is. It's really hard to read them. Are they mad? Are they amused? Are they indifferent, right? Some of you, when I look out here, you have that face. And that's better than some other faces I've seen in the past. So that's good. I'm okay with that. As for me, I've gotten in trouble my entire life because I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And my face always portrays my emotion. I, I, if I feel it, I show it. Unless I'm really thinking about it, right? I can't help but show how I feel like almost all the time. I got kicked out of class in high school for it. Uh, and I said a few things. And, I, and, and the look on my face would always be, uh, you know, betraying what I felt. And as an adult, I also had this happen. I've had bosses say, what were you really thinking when you said that thing in that meeting? Because I looked at your face and that's not how you felt, right? All the time. I, I just wear my emotion on my sleeve. I think this, though, I think a lot of the time, this can be bad, but a lot of time this is actually a really good thing when we do this. And we show people concern or care or love just by looking at them. We can communicate real things to people that are powerful when words fail just by looking at them. So sometimes a look is all that we need to see that we, what, what we know we need is true. And I've seen this proven over and over again in bad moments where there's really nothing to say, Right? So to put this in context for Exodus tonight, the episode that sort of bookends the experiences of Moses and God speaking together in Exodus, they involve two very different methods by God with Moses. So we go all the way back to the beginning of this. And one of those first encounters between God and Moses is the burning bush, the bush that was on fire, but wasn't consuming the the plant. And Moses had no idea what was going on, like we would. Like we walked up to something like that and was like, this is insane. So even when the voice of the Lord spoke, Moses didn't know who it was. So if you remember all the way back, if you were here, it says this, Moses, or God said to Moses, I am who I am when Moses asked him who's speaking to me. And this is a big moment in Exodus, all the way back to chapter three. This is Moses exercising faith. And it's the kind of faith that he's gonna show over and over again to us that leads to the liberation of his people, right? It leads to the creation of this nation that we now call Israel. It sets the groundwork for the eventual rise of the Messiah, Jesus himself. I've heard this before, uh, it's described as a single act of obedience for Moses, but it was so much more than that, I really think. It's the same decision that every single one of us faces or will face at one point, this evidence of a personal God that wants something from our lives and for our lives revealed in Jesus, and then we have to decide, will I reorder my entire basis of who I am and how I live based on this evidence? So simply put, I want to talk about this tonight. The way of Jesus is disruption. Uh, God certainly disrupted Moses' life. He's tending flocks. He's working for his father-in-law, which is probably, I might do that for Father's Day. That's a whole nother thing, right? But he's living this quiet, comfortable life and God disrupts him. I, I believe that Jesus disrupts our comfort too. Jesus asks us to lean into him personally and fully and to lay bare all that we are to his power the power that only he holds to change us, to really make a difference. And we get to see this develop in the story of Moses all throughout Exodus and beyond it even. Like through all these ups and downs, we see Moses succeed like nobody ever has. And we see him fail in really huge ways. I think it's fantastic. It adds this depth to the story that Moses, as we saw him last week, smashing the tablets of law on the altar of this golden bull, this fake God, And Moses is this man full of zeal and passion for God's ways. 
for this idea of covenant, the agreement over and over again that God's made with his people, that they will keep God's ways and God will lead them to the promised land and make them a great nation and a holy people. So fast forwarding to where we left off last week, the destruction of these tablets, the 10 commandments, the law written on these tablets, Moses sees them falsely celebrating and worshiping this golden bull and he smashes them. The text gives us a little bit of information about exactly what is happening in the next section as we move into chapter 34 uh, into 35. It says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with those two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. His face was radiant, it's glowing. His face betrayed his state of being. Moses had on his face the encounter that he just had with God and he couldn't help it. And as he smashed these tablets with this radiant face, it makes it even more interesting to me. And we're told that Aaron, his, his brother, who's the priest, uh, he just set up this worship service to this golden bull and all these partying Israelites. If you were here last week, the, the sound of the Israelites worshiping this little golden statue was mistaken for war cries. And as, as Moses comes onto this scene, we're told that Aaron and the Israelites are horrified. They're terrified of him. They look at him and they are so scared because his face is either glowing or it's like lightning or we're not super sure exactly what it means, but we know that something happened. And what we do know is this, is that Moses, from this point forward, wears a veil in the presence of his people to make sure that they don't have to see what they can't handle, which is his face completely changed. I've had people ask me many times, will you wear something over your face? <laughs> Different reasons, I think. In any case, Moses was marked as a changed man because of the presence of the Lord, the very presence of God. Moses' role as mediator between God and the Israelites is obviously an important one. And the way that this is illustrated in relation, again, is around Sabbath. So right after this moment, where Moses has changed. He looks different. He's physically different, right? He's internally different. The very first thing that God tells him is, hey, remember that idea of taking a rest. I'm bringing it back up again. And the idea of setting this one day apart and not producing anything is the only command that's reiterated in this moment. And it gets even more extreme, which I want to, I want to talk about for a second because it's important. This is what he tells Moses. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath will be put to death. How about that? How about that? It, even making a fire to cook for your family was punishable by death, which is like maybe an example of, of taking it so far as to illustrate just how serious God is about the people taking this rest. I don't think it would work for us to go in and say to our boss, if I work tomorrow, I'm going to get killed. But in this case, it's a direct threat that's right there for them. And it really got me thinking about this. Uh, in the New Testament, there's this particular passage that is all, it always runs through my head. It's in Luke 14. And there's an argument going on about whether pulling an ox out of a pit fell into work or not work on the day of the Sabbath, right? I used to think it was like just a ridiculous thing, like this is a ridiculous argument and maybe even an extreme argument until I thought about it in light of this commandment reading Exodus these last weeks. I mean, no wonder they argued about it, right? Their literal life was potentially on the line. So who would want to mess that up? Saving an ox generally wouldn't be worth my life, right? I don't even know what an ox is, for the record. <laughs> like, I, when I played Oregon Trail in school, I remember they pulled my wagon. But I, other than that, I, saving an ox is not something that I would give my life up for, right? The religious leaders, like for good reason in the New Testament, these guys called the Pharisees, they get a really bad rap in the Jesus story, and they should. 
But I always look for these like little cracks of light to show they're human. Like what were they actually up to? What were they thinking? What are they doing? And so I think in this instance, as Jesus is arguing with them about this topic, I think they're asking this question out of fear. The fear of the way they were raised. The fear of the things that they were told. The things that they, they were told good boys don't do or good boys do do. Or this is what, they, this is what you keep. These are the, the laws. This is how you live. And I, I was thinking about it all week about how I do this too. There's things that I'm afraid to lean into because I'm afraid of the way that I was taught way back by my family or by some church or by somebody who meant well but struck fear in my heart instead of love, right? The Pharisees, these religious leaders, are in this moment where they freeze and they look at Jesus and, and, and they say this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus asked them that. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus is really asking, what, can, what, what do you think I can do today? And the answer comes down to this. Jesus applies both common sense and care for people over just plain principles. And Jesus puts it like this. He says, if one of you has a child, and changes it a little bit, or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And this is so good. The next verse just says this. They had nothing to say. The religious leaders were dumbfounded. And maybe they had nothing to say because their worldview just got blown up, right? Or maybe it's because they saw Jesus heal a man right before this and walk away alive, and then it made them question their theology. Maybe they were just confused or, or they were more angry and more resolute in the way that they felt. But in any case, what we see here is a clash of people who are trying to keep rules, people who are so focused on being good and, and to the letter of the law, and Jesus who's saying, I'm letting the spirit rule over my life instead. And this is a huge distinction. Now, Jesus constantly gives away love and attention to people who don't fit this neat box of the religious standard, who don't follow every rule uh, to the T. He doesn't tell people, do whatever, everything's great, let's just live together and dance around a fire or whatever, but he does at every interaction indiscriminately change their world, Right? Or stated another way, it's like this. It's not up to us what somebody does after they're lifted up out of that well. It's just obvious that lifting them out of the well is the right thing to do. And that's where I think Jesus is at in this passage. And, and, and all the way back to Exodus now, for their part, the Israelites in this aftermath of their golden bull episode in worship service, uh, they end this book called Exodus in, I think, a fairly good place. Chapters 35 to 38 they lay out this making of the tabernacle to worship God and instruction by instruction, this ark that's gonna hold the tablets of the law, like this ark. When I hear ark, I just go, I think it's the same one that Indiana Jones and the Las Vegas Raiders fight over later. I'm not really sure. But, but the, this, this cabinet, more or less, to hold these laws to the priestly robes, all these things I mentioned earlier, really all these things that were told to Moses we see come to fruition here at the end of the book. Three specific guys do the majority of the work. So it's just like your workplace, right? <laughs> Everyone else is pitching where you can, is what they're told. Um, but all the work of Exodus and all the highs and lows that got us to where we are at the end of this book, they all sort of reset in chapter 40. So like even this episode we saw last week with 3,000 people being slaughtered for their disobedience, it just kind of resets in chapter 40. It's the, it's the Jewish New Year, and they start it all by assembling all the pieces of the worship center together at last. There's this giant tabernacle. It's like a traveling church tent, but not like the South. And they have like the ark and they have all these things that they've been told to do. And it's all together at last in one place. 
And the spirit of all that we're talking about tonight is really this. The setup is marked by the repetition over and over again of a key phrase. Moses did everything, quote, as the Lord commanded him. I counted eight times in chapter, chapters 39 and 40 that we're told that, that Moses did everything as the Lord commanded him until the work was finally finished. So here in Exodus, and we still have, if you want to do this on your own at home, like this is like your teacher signing a little summer reading, right? There's two more great books of law that, that you can read. Uh, three more books of great law that you can read right after this if you want to that go over some of the same stories but get you the rest of Moses' story. But here, the legacy of Moses in Exodus is this. He's, he's leaving a legacy of both law and obedience that we see clearly here. He's representing that the, the life that's sacrificed to the service of the Lord is a life that's well-lived. I, I think this at the end of Exodus, I think it's an example that should be challenging for each of us because it spells out the results of doing things that are asked of us even when the results or the outcomes are hazy or unclear. We don't know exactly what they're going to be. Clarity comes with safe bets, Right? But, but faith often requires us to step into places that we know are right and are good, even when we don't know how to articulate what they're going to be, right? To, so to risk looking foolish to those that are chasing things like golden bulls in our world. And our golden bulls in our world are many. But some of the ones that, that are, are obvious are things like fame and money and status, right? And instead of chasing those things to be the people that do just as the Lord commanded, like Moses did. Even when it means you're going to be anonymous or a little bit more poor than you wanted to be or whatever that might be. Chasing after the things that the Lord commanded, which is an easy thing to say, right? It's an easy thing to say. I think this. I think Moses, being certain of the presence of the Lord, it aided this pursuit. It made it different for him. The last line of the book of Exodus, as the Israelites, they start heading towards this land that was promised to them with their portable tabernacle in tow, carrying all this stuff with them. The last line is this. It says, so the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night and the sight of, of, of all the Israelites during all their travels. I think it's a great last line. So we are people who are trying to discern what the right ways are. And we're aided by just the faith that we carry and what we know to be true. And that links us to Moses in this really interesting way. Uh, this last weekend, uh, we started having a high school group at my house. Um, I haven't done high school ministry for a long time. And so I was hanging out and they needed my help. And so uh, we, were, we were talking about some things and it led us to Hebrews 11. And uh, I don't know, last year we did Hebrews it got my mind working around this topic in a brand new way. In Hebrews 11.1 1 is a famous verse, and if you don't know it, it says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Okay, and then verse 2, right after it, rarely gets read, but verse 2 says this. This is what the ancients were commended for. So faith is assurance. It's, it's, hope, it's hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's confidence that all these things are true and real. And then after many examples here in Hebrews, the, the end of it in verses 24 to 28, we get the example of Moses, okay? And I like this bit of it right here. It says this, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Now I'm taking this way back to both when we studied Hebrews and when we studied the Passover together in here. 
But faith here in Hebrews is this word that I love. It's a Greek word called pistis. And in Greek, it's denoting the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of his work on our behalf. So faith here in Hebrews means to have confidence, hope, and assurance through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's it. So in our best times and our darkest times, it's a constant and steady belief that he is with us. That his death and his resurrection means everything has changed. So even all the way back to Exodus or Genesis, to the earliest stories that we have, we're being set up for this person of Jesus, for this work of Jesus, for this freedom of Jesus through every story. I like how this one writer puts it. It says, wonderful as all this Exodus and Moses stuff is, was, it was but a shadow of the closeness to God available now to his corporate people known as the church. That's us. And his direct indwelling available to every individual. That's us. Who repents of sin and trusts in God's gift of salvation through Christ. His new covenants, new Moses. And his for all time honored and accepted representative, rescuer, lawgiver, law ender, and heavenly temple. That is Jesus. Jesus is described as the new Moses throughout the New Testament. Pointing to really kind of almost ironically how important Moses is for the base of the redemptive work of the Savior Jesus. But we might see this set up better or best in an episode that takes place in the gospel stories where Jesus himself also ascends a mountain to go meet with God, to have an encounter that's described as transformative both physically and spiritually, just like Moses' episode here in Exodus. And this is how it happens for Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, I'm about to die. He says, I'm about to die so that no one else ever truly has to. And then he says, eternity is going to be available to all through that. And then we get this. It says, about eight days after saying this, he took Peter, John, and James with him. And he went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became uh, as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses, here's our guy, and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Okay, now the story goes on. Peter says something that's described as foolish, which is so great, such a Peter moment. And it says this, while he, Peter, was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And then they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. So this echo of the Sinai experience of Moses, it puts Jesus in a direct relationship with the law as embodied by Moses and with prophecy as embodied by Elijah, these two important figures that he meets with on this mountain. But it's really pointing to this. It's pointing that Jesus is standing as the mediator between really everything. Uh, All the law that we've seen in the Bible and that we continue to see, all the judgments that God has rained down through the prophets, all the things that happen. Jesus is the mediator between all the rules and the requirements that Moses has received. All the what ifs and the hard to understands uh, of some of the rest of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in those kind of certain terms. And there's a lot to digest and, and to grapple with with this. But here's the truth about what Jesus is actually setting up in this story. This is Jesus showing us He's done all of the work of figuring this out for us. And the agreement is, is that leaning into him will never disappoint, will never let us down, will never be not enough. And the thing that I think is keen here is at the end, God says, this is my son, listen to him. 
I want to see if we can do that tonight. And I just want to see if we can listen to them. Here's what I know. We're busy people, right? We're people with a lot of demands. We're people with a lot of noise around us. But Moses, as the Lord commanded him, slowed down on the Sabbath. Moses, as the Lord commanded him, leaned into the difficult work of being refined and changed by God. So I want to try to listen to him together. And don't worry, I'm not gonna, I don't have some trick planned where I'm going to be like, here's God over here. <laughs> we should have thought of that. That'd be good. But, but here's what I want to do. I want to lean into some silence together. I want, I want you to be able to do this work. Would you try this with me? And I know some people hate this, but it's okay. I have a microphone. Would you just close your eyes? And would you feel your feet on the ground? Would you feel the space around you and just know that you're in a good and safe place? And I want you to ask God a question, no matter what you believe about God. I want you to ask God, God, how do you want to disrupt my life? Like right now, where are you stressed or caring too much or what are you worrying about? What do you think is a barrier in your own life that you just can't ever get past? Where do you keep asking Jesus to show up in your life and you're just waiting for it to happen? Ask that question. God, where do you want to disrupt my life? Breathe deep. I know that Jesus wants to speak to you. And like God had commanded us or asked us in this passage, listen to him. To his righteousness, his work on our behalf to make us like him. To make us righteous and clean. It's not lacking. It's not, it's not under construction. It's complete. It's just waiting for us. So Lord Jesus, be with us and hear our prayer tonight. Jesus, be near. Jesus, be closer than my skin and in every breath that I breathe. Jesus, help me to see your work, your care, your righteousness on my behalf. And Jesus, may we be your people in the right place at the right time to receive from you the glory of Jesus, the one who knows us, the one who works on our behalf, the one who calls us to brand new things every single day because he's alive, because Jesus is the standard that pushes us into freedom and into life. We're so thankful for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.